Welcome to another episode of How to Read the Bible. I'm your host, Nate Claiborne, here again with Benjamin Kant. How are we doing, Ben? Nate, doing well, man. Excited to jump into one of my favorite chapters on how to read the Bible. That's right. It's been a few weeks, so we can kind of catch readers up to uh, readers and listeners up to speed. We have just finished the book of Luke. We're three chapters into Acts, and we are going to be about a third of the way through Isaiah by the end of the week. So um, there's a lot of stuff that we've missed the last couple of weeks, but this chapter that we're going to talk about today, as you mentioned, is probably one of the key chapters for what we've been trying to do in this podcast, which is help people read the Bible as Christians, especially when it comes to the Old Testament, but especially as it comes to the Testaments fitting together. Mm -hmm. And there's probably not a better keystone chapter than Luke 24. Mm -hmm. Tell us why that is, Ben. Yeah, well, a good question or a good place to start would be um, what makes us Christians is, uh, as Paul said in in Romans 10, 9 and 10, that we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. So, the Lordship of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus are at the very heart of our faith. And so what does it mean to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation? What does it mean to read the Bible in light of Jesus's resurrection? Well, Luke 24 is a resurrection chapter. Jesus has been crucified, um, has been raised again from the dead. And we'll just pick up in, in chapter 24, verse 13, uh, because it says that very day, two of them, two disciples, that is, we're going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Pause for a moment. There's a theory that G- called the swoon theory that says that Jesus of Nazareth really didn't die on the cross. Mm-hmm. He just was hurt really, 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 really badly and then put into a tomb and then somehow resuscitated and then basically like came back. And that's that's how we could explain materialistically or from a, from a non-supernatural worldview, that's how we could explain his supposed resurrection. Yeah. How do you walk seven miles on the Emmaus road when you've had nails driven through your feet? Right. <laughs> uh, and, and you're swooning still, right? Like you mm-hmm. don't recover from Roman crucifixion in like three days and, and then take a little jaunt to Jerusalem. <laughs> right. I just don't think that happens or or from Jerusalem, I should say. It's, it's one of the many, pro- I mean, just not to get too far into the the... Side trail here, but it's one of the many problems with that theory. The other being the Romans were professional executioners. The soldiers were, you know, professional tomb guarders. That's right. So he's going to overpower them after being beaten within an inch of his life. And yeah. as you said, you know, can probably not stand up. Uh-huh. And why this matters to do this little excursus on the resurrection, um, deconstruction and deconversion is a big thing in our day and age. And most of the stories I've, I've heard about deconversion none of them ever deal with the resurrection. Mm. They they just avoid it completely. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is is such a prof- there's such a profound case for it that it actually happened in a historical factual sense that it it just you got to deal with it if you're going to try to leave the faith but a lot of people don't. I think maybe cowardice is part of that, maybe because it's got more to do with emotion than it does to do with actual reasoning through whether or not this stuff is true. Yeah. Um, and so I think deconversions, a lot of the stories, if I don't hear them mention the resurrection, I just don't buy it that they're actually like arrived to some new enlightened state. Um, I think that they've just not dealt with the actual issues. Yeah. In my experience with people I've talked to, it's mostly they wrestle with historicity, but it's stuff with the Old Testament where mm-hmm. there is some leeway in some places. Mm-hmm. It's very rarely, I looked into all the evidence about whether or not Jesus rose from the dead and it just seemed so thin that my faith kind of collapsed in on That's itself. That's right. 
yeah, I read N.T. Wright's like thousand page book on the resurrection and the son of God. And I came away just not, not uh, convinced. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I doubt it. Yeah. Uh, so let's keep going. Um, so they're walking on this road together. And while uh, this is verse 14, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, these things being Jesus's life and death. Mm-hmm. Um, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? I love Jesus, period. Like, it's just the way he engages with people. It's like, he knows they don't know who he is. And they're just going to ask, he's just going to ask them this question. Yeah. Hey, so what are you guys talking about here? That's right. Yeah. yeah. And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus playing dumb. Truly, yeah. he's playing the Columbo method right here. Mm-hmm. What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word. That's important because G- Luke tells us in Acts 1 that he wrote the gospel of Luke to show us all that, be- that Jesus began to do and to teach. Mm-hmm. So what do we see here? He's mighty in deed and word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. You could argue, uh, based on that verse, it's our chief priests and rulers, that there's some religious disillusionment that's happening here. Mm -hmm. Why? Because verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We'd staked a lot on this guy. We hoped in him, but our own religious leaders crucified him. These people, these guys are, as it said earlier, sad. They're, they're disillusioned. Their hope, their hearts are broken because their hopes have been dashed. And so uh, they continue um, going on and, and talking about how some people in their crew have said that Jesus may be resurrected, uh, but they don't really believe it. And so they keep going and we get to verse 25 and Jesus said to them, oh, foolish ones. And here's key, slow of heart to believe. So they didn't believe they just, they were, their hearts were, were unwilling to go there because they'd been dashed mm-hmm. by these hopes. And so the possibility of resurrection was so far away because emotionally they couldn't rest. They couldn't grapple with it. They were crushed. Yeah. So for our deconversionist people, let's just say the emotional component really matters. Mm-hmm. Like they're emotionally dashed right now. And so they can't, they can't bring themselves to believe in the resurrection because that would cause them to have to hope again. But it goes on. Jesus says, Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, Jesus is giving us uh, an incredible Bible study here. And I would love to have been, I remember Edmund Clowney making this point. He would have loved to have eavesdropped on that conversation. Wouldn't you love to hear a... Jesus giving a Bible study of an overarch of the whole of scripture and teaching them about how they, it all points to him. And Edmund Clowney said, we have that. It's called the New Testament. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought that was so good. It's like, that's why the New Testament authors are constantly riffing on the Hebrew Bible is because that's what Jesus taught them to do uh, is to interpret all the scriptures regarding the things concerning himself. And so that's what we do as Christian readers of the Bible is we interpret all of the scriptures as things concerning Jesus. Yeah. 
I, I got distracted as you were talking because I was I was wondering. I was like, this would have been a really incredible Bible study. I wonder how long it was. Mm. Uh, and so I just looked up average time to walk seven miles. I love that. A relaxed pace is about two hours and 20 minutes. That's a good amount of time. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not unreasonable, but I mean, I think about conversations I've had that have been formative. Mm-hmm. They're usually longer than that. So yeah. in some ways, it's it's amazing that he's able to do that with them on the road to Emmaus. But then to think about the time constraints of probably not more than three hours, definitely not less than two. Yeah. Unless they were power walking, but probably not. <laughs> yeah. Especially if he's been crucified recently. Right. <laughs> Just kidding. He has a resurrected body that could probably power walk better than the best of us. That's right. <laughs> uh, and so Jesus is uh, walking for a couple hours with these disciples. I'm so glad you looked that up and, and discussing these things. They're not carrying a, a, a cart full of scrolls. Mm-hmm. This is from memory because yeah. uh, they memorize their Bibles. And so they are... He's interpreting all of this, and and we'll pick up in 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further. I don't even know what to make of this, Nate. (laughs) But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. It's like Jesus pump fakes to see if they really want to hear more. Mm -hmm. And, And that's Jesus, right? Like, he would often test or challenge somebody uh, to make sure there wasn't some superficial response to him. He wanted like true, sincere disciples. And so he kind of does this like pump fake, like, I'm going to keep going. And they're like, like, no, 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 please stay. He's like, okay, fine. Uh, And so it goes on in verse 30. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Now, if you are a Christian who gathers in worship with uh, a worshiping congregation that eats the Lord's Supper uh, on a regular basis, you might re- recognize those verbs mm-hmm. uh, that he took, he blessed, he broke, he gave. Those are the words of the Lord's Supper. Those are sacramental words. Those are the words of the Eucharist. Uh, Jesus in, in Luke twenty two nineteen 19 um, institutes the Lord's Supper doing the exact, those four verbs show up there. So there's there's something about how word and sacrament go together here. Because guess what happens? It says, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And so there's something about the breaking of bread and the giving of wine, this this meal that Jesus gives to his disciples that actually is important for their eyes to be open. We see something of Jesus in the Lord's Supper, in this Eucharistic meal. That's really important that word and sacrament go together. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned uh, you mentioned N.T. Wright a minute ago. I'll use him as a pivot here because it was in his, um, not his Thousand Pages of Resurrection book, but his other book on the Gospels. Uh, it's called Jesus and the Victory of God. He points out that this, the verbs here, uh, especially um, took and gave, um, is the same in, in, it's the same language that's in Genesis 3, mm. the taking of the fruit. Uh, the giving and then the eyes being opened. So it's it's the take, give, eyes open mm. piece of it. And so if we think of the symmetry there mm-hmm. in the garden, they take the forbidden fruit, they eat of it, and their eyes are opened, meaning they recognize something that's been there, but mm-hmm. they didn't quite pay attention to or was revealed to them all of a sudden. Uh, but in this case, it was their nakedness and their shame that mm-hmm. their eyes were open to. And in this in this story, it's it seems pretty intentional on Luke's part that he's he's he could have told this in any sort of way, mm-hmm. but he lays it out so that the the pacing and the rhythm and the verbs that he chooses are the disciples taking and eating, but then their eyes are open to the resurrected Christ who takes away their shame mm-hmm. and their guilt and 
um, their sin. That's powerful. And that's a great way to model the kind of reading we're talking about, right? That, that Luke is a great Bible reader. He's, he's brilliant in that sense. And so he's layering meaning upon meaning. So he's both referencing Jesus's institution of the Lord's Supper and this, as you said earlier, um, before we started recording, this false or inverted word in sacrament that happened in the garden, mm-hmm. a false word from the serpent, a false taking and eating that led to a an opening to their nakedness and shame. Yeah. And if you're like wrestling with us as a hearer, you're like, listen, you know, I'm not so into the whole sacramental thing. That's, that might be, you're reading too much into this. Look at verse 35. When they start reporting uh, what happened, it says, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. That's revelation language. Mm-hmm. Jesus made known himself in the breaking of the bread. He revealed himself in this sacramental eating of this meal. Yeah. So we continue on, and we're going to skip a, a section where Jesus, uh, really funny, like appears to his disciples, scares them. They think he's a ghost. He's like, listen, I'm not a ghost. Listen, I can eat. I can drink. I like fish. Clearly, I'm not a ghost. <laughs> and you're like, okay. Uh, and so we keep going to, to uh, verse. Although we could we could pause here for a minute because I, I get a lot of questions in Bible class about the new heavens and the new earth and mm. what will we be able to do in heaven. And this is w- probably the only places in scripture that we have evidential basis that resurrected bodies will still eat. Yeah. Maybe not need to eat, but maybe mm-hmm. do need to eat. But the fact that he took an aid in their presence means he has a resurrected body mm-hmm. that's not just sort of like sort of a spirit body that you it looks physical, but if you try to like touch it, your hand goes through. That's right. It's like, no, he can actually take, eat, digest, and it, it's it's affirming his humanity in a very real sense mm-hmm. that gives us an indication of what we might experience in our resurrected bodies. Yeah, that's well said and important uh, to, to note that. Um, but we're still it, skipping this part. But we're still skipping it. But those are good comments because the whole broiled fish thing just cracks me up. Like Jesus is like, does anybody have any fish? <laughs> uh, so verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then it says, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written. Now, pause for a moment. Usually, if thus it is written is is in the New Testament, you can expect, you just know that that's kind of a cue to say, oh, the Old Testament's going to be quoted here. Look at what Jesus does. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. There's no quotation marks in my Bible. Um, I'm assuming there's none in yours either, Nate, mm-hmm. which is significant because it thus it is written is a formula that cues our attention to say, oh, the Old Testament's about to be quoted here. Yeah. And so that's the way it shows up in in almost all the times that it shows up in, in throughout the New Testament. Um, but here, Jesus doesn't actually quote any particular verse from the Old Testament, which scholars have wrestled with this and come to the conclusion, what he must be doing is, Thus it is written in the entire Bible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in other words, you can summarize the entire Bible under two headings, which is Messiah and mission. Or another way to look at that is there's, there's kind of these, uh, you and I are both wearing glasses today, um, and glasses have two lenses, one for the left and one for the right eye. Maybe your two lenses through which you should read the Bible well in light of the resurrection and the Lordship of Jesus are the, the, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, Messiah, 
and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. That's mission. Mm -hmm. So we are not reading the Bible properly if it doesn't lead us to Jesus and it doesn't propel us out to the nations with this good news that Jesus has just accomplished on our behalf. Yeah. And I I think it's worth noting right here how much of a game changer this is to some degree in interpretation. Uh, because there, there's scholars that will argue that we need to just stick to the historical grammatical interpretation when we're, when we're making sense of what an Old Testament text means. And by that we mean, uh, we, we could use Isaiah because we've been in Isaiah with our other CBR readings. So when we're reading Isaiah 7, what Isaiah 7 needs to mean is limited by the historical context that Isaiah is writing in and what the actual grammar of the text says. Mm-hmm. So whatever Isaiah says there is what it means. And so it creates a problem when it gets reappropriated in the New Testament by Matthew, because then these scholars will have to wrestle with, is what Matthew doing inappropriate Mm -hmm. at one level, because he's violating a principle of interpretation, or does he get kind of a free pass because he's writing inspired scripture so he can make those interpretive moves, but Mm -hmm. we're not allowed to? Right. Or is it possible a a different way of resolving the problem? And I I think this is kind of what we're getting at is there's a dual authorship of all scripture Mm -hmm. where there is the human Isaiah who is prophesying in his historical context, but he is also prophesying under the inspiration of the spirit Mm -hmm. who transcends time and space and who has, I don't want to say different meanings in mind, Mm -hmm. but what Isaiah's prophecy can mean as time moves on and as the Messiah comes and dies and resurrected can mm-hmm. evolve over time to some degree. Yeah. Without erasing its original context, we now have this Christological context that we read all of Scripture in. Mm-hmm. And they, they don't erase each other, uh, but the Christological context is the ultimate context of all Scripture, not just the New Testament, not just the Gospels, but mm-hmm. the Old Testament as well. Yeah. And, and readers of Scripture have called that the fuller sense of Scripture, right? It's it's filled out more in that sense. Um, and, and we'll continue to talk about this on this podcast because it's yeah. one of the main things we do. Um, but one thing that we want to point out just kind of in conclusion is um, a, a way to read the Bible is to pay attention to the words that are used. Um, and so three times the word opened is used. In verse 31, it says, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. In verse 32, it says, uh, they're recounting this. He said, they said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. And then in verse 45, it says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And so this is really important because we just assume that the Bible sometimes is almost like reading any other book. And that if you just have the right tools in mind, if you know how to read a text well, um, then you can just understand it and you get it and and it makes sense. And so there are secular academics that read the Bible uh, with their set of tools and and find really insightful things in it. Um, But there's a real sense in which we need the Holy Spirit. We need a supernatural way in which we read the scriptures. Our minds, our hearts, our eyes need to be opened as we open the scriptures. And so that's a Christian reading of the text of scripture that says, hey, I'm prone to have biases. I'm prone to, uh, in my idolatry, pervert the text to say something I don't want or that, that I want it to say rather than hearing what it really does say. Hey, I'm prone to misinterpretation. Therefore, I come under the text of scripture with humility and I pray, Holy Spirit, 
Shine your light on this word. Shine your light in my heart. Open the eyes of my heart that I might behold wondrous things out of your law, as the psalmist says. Mm. And so we as readers of scripture, but also as hearers of the word uh, read and preached in gathered worship, we need to be dependent on the Holy Spirit in our reading of scripture. If there's anything that Luke 24 teaches us, it is that Jesus had to open the scriptures, open their minds, open their eyes in order for them to actually see him clearly. Otherwise, they would have gone and continued in their ignorance and in their just total oblivion that Jesus is who he said he is and that he really is the point of all of the Bible. Yeah. We're just reading the reading both the letter and the spirit. Mm-hmm. And it's not one or the other where it's just sort of anything goes. If I see patterns here, then sure, they're there. Uh, and it's not just the letter on the page is what all we have. We have the spirit to open our eyes as we're reading. That's right. Well, it's great talking with you, Ben. It was hopefully informative to readers as this is a very significant chapter for interpreting the New and Old Testament. And we'll look forward to next week. Thanks, Nate.